I want to begin with a question. The question is this. How do we know that God likes fresh coffee? How do we know that God likes fresh coffee? Because he brews. Eh? Eh? Man, I've been waiting for months to use that dad joke. We are back in our Hebrews series. Uh, if you were with us in the fall, you know that we had uh, 12 weeks in the book of Hebrews. Hopefully returning to this series feels like seeing an old friend again. We have nine more weeks left in the book of Hebrews. If you remember, the author is writing to a group of Jewish background Christians. They are facing temptation and persecution. Their faith is being threatened. They're considering returning to Judaism, to the history and the stability of it. But the author is writing, warning them, reminding them why Jesus is the true Messiah, that he is better than anything in this world, better than anything that false religion has to offer. And that is true for us as well. That whatever our hearts are tempted to look to, Jesus is better. We've seen in Hebrews that that Jesus is better than the angels. He's superior to Abraham and Moses. He's more excellent than the law and the old covenant. He's greater than the priests and the sacrifices. And we'll find out in weeks to come that he's more glorious than Jerusalem and the promised land. And again and again, the book of Hebrews has called us and reminded us of the superiority of Christ and called us to draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. That at the throne of grace, you can find all that you need. We've seen our theme verse from Hebrews 4, 16 that has been woven throughout our series. Where we're called with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That you may receive mercy and find help, find grace to help in time of need at the throne of grace. And Hebrews pictures Jesus seated in victory, seated in the throne next to God the Father and and. Far from being something we should be intimidated about, we're called to draw near to find grace and and mercy in our time of need. So we're going to be jumping in where we left off in the second half of Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using a blue hardback Bible, it's page 1006. We looked at the beginning of this chapter way back before Christmas, and it talked about how the entire sacrificial system and tabernacle of the Old Covenant were set up to regulate access to God. But Jesus, the Messiah, has come to reform that system that through him we can draw near into his presence. If you look at chapter 9, verse 11, it says that Christ has purified our conscience so that we can serve the living God. And so we're going to see in verse 15 and following that because of Christ's work, he is the mediator of a new covenant, the mediator of a new covenant to enable us to walk with God. So let me pray, and then we'll read and dive in. Father, we thank you for your presence among us already this morning, and we simply ask in Jesus' name that you would guide our time in the Word, that you would teach us. Send your Spirit. Amen. Hebrews 9, verse 15 says, Therefore He, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. Amen. Verse 15 says that Jesus, our Savior, is the mediator of a new covenant. That means he's the the arbitrator, right? Hebrews has seen Jesus as the high priest. One way to understand a high priest is a mediator that stands between a, a broken, fallen, sinful people and a holy God. And Jesus stands between us, mediating, carving the way, inviting us into the presence of God the Father. And he mediates a covenant that is new and that is better. Covenant is a term used throughout the scriptures. It's a binding agreement. When any two people or two parties make a, an agreement, it's a covenant defining the nature of their relationship, both the conditions and the benefits of that agreement. The most basic form of the covenant in the Old Testament is the promise that God made to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. In its simplest form, that's God's covenant with us. And in the Old Covenant, if the people lived according to the covenant, they would receive blessing, they would receive an eternal inheritance in God's presence. But if they did not, we read that they would find curse, the curse of death apart from God. But Jesus has come, we see in verse 15, to mediate for us a new covenant, a better covenant, that those who have been called by him can receive the promised eternal inheritance, an inheritance of life in God's kingdom, an inheritance that's been promised to God's people since the time of Abraham. And this eternal life is now possible, verse 15 says, because a death has occurred, the death of God's Son redeeming us from our transgression, from our disobedience, See, the laws of the first covenant regulated how we live, but we transgressed those laws and expectations. To transgress a law means you trespass, you walk outside of God's will, trespassing in an area that you're not supposed to be. And so the penalty for trespassing is death, but we read here we have been redeemed, rescued, ransomed because of the death of Jesus, because he died in our place. Even though that covenant with God was broken and the penalty must be paid, now Christ has paid it for you through faith and you receive an eternal inheritance. Look at verses 16 and 17. It talks about dealing with the will. Will is another way to translate the Hebrew word for covenant here in the Greek as well. And, and a will only takes effect when somebody dies, right? You can't enforce a will while somebody is still alive. 
I remember when I was a teenager, a, a buddy of mine, his, his grandparents decided that rather than wait for them to die and, and to enact their will, they gathered all the family together and they gave out their inheritance before they passed away. I don't, I don't know if they like calculated out how much longer they had or what, but, but probably 30 years ago, this buddy of mine got $500 as an inheritance from his grandparents, which back then, as like a, you know, 18, 19 year old, I mean, it might as well have been like 100 grand, right? Like he had $500 to do whatever he wanted. But that's like the exception that proves the rule, right? Typically, you don't get your inheritance, you don't enact a will while the person's still alive, right? Somebody has to die, the executor of the will has to die to get the inheritance. And the author's point is that we can view this new covenant as Jesus' will. Did you ever think about that? The new covenant is Jesus' will for you and I. So it goes on in verse 18 to explain that, that even in the first covenant, the old covenant was not inaugurated without the shedding of blood because death has always been a part of the covenant, foreshadowing the death of the Messiah. And so 19 through 21, go back and reference Exodus 24, that after Moses had received all the commandments from God, and had enacted the covenant, there was this ceremony that took place, and blood was, was, was sacrificed, and, and the blood was sprinkled on the people of Israel and on the vessels of worship, and, and, and it was a symbol of death, sealing the old covenant, purifying the people. And so 22 says, look, everything, almost everything is purified and cleansed with blood, because without the shedding of blood, what do we read there in the text? There's no forgiveness of sin. So if you go back and look at Leviticus and the history of the sacrifices and why blood was so symbolic and significant, Leviticus says that it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement for sin. See, the blood symbolizes that the life of the animal has been taken. And when we take the bread in the cup and celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a symbol, the blood is a symbol that life was taken, that the life of God's very own son. See, because the wages of sin is death. And the only way for you and I to come into God's presence, to draw near to the throne, is for, either us, to, to, is for us to have faith in Christ because he has died on our behalf. And so the, the author quotes in verse 20 the very words of Moses saying, this is the blood of the covenant. The covenant is enacted through blood. And those are words that Jesus himself would repeat. He would repeat the words of Moses at the Last Supper the night before his death, and he would change it slightly. Instead of just saying, this is the blood of the covenant, he would say, this is my blood of the covenant knowing that his blood would be spilled. He said, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And because of his death, we now can receive this promised inheritance. And it's a will. It, Jesus' will has now been distributed to us that we receive an inheritance. Any, anybody ever been to the reading of a will, like at the death of a family? Does that only happen in movies? Is that, is that a real thing? People gather in a room and the lawyer comes out. You've done that, huh? Imagine, imagine after the death of Jesus that all of God's people gathered in a funeral home for the will of Jesus to be read. That's what's being described here. Now remember, Jesus is the Son of God. So, so what he owns is the entire world, is all of, of God's kingdom and all belongs to him. Now most of the time, at the reading of a will, when inheritance is given, it's split up, right? And everybody who knew, knew the deceased family and friends get a little piece of the inheritance, and sometimes that causes problems, right? You maybe found that out the hard way. So imagine in the funeral home after the death of Jesus, thousands and thousands of his followers are all gathered together, raiding for the will to be, to be read, hoping to get a small piece of Jesus' inheritance. Now, he's got a big inheritance, right? Everything under creation. 
spiritual and material. But it's a lot of people. There's a lot of followers of Jesus. We all have to get, that all has to be divided up. Now, what would you be thinking if you're sitting in that room as the will of Jesus was about to be read? If you're like me, you'd be thinking, man, I hope my name gets called. I hope I get a little piece of Jesus' kingdom. I know I haven't been a, a great Christian, you might think. I know I mess up every day, but I hope I get a little something. I hope I get a few dollars, a little piece of the kingdom. But the reading of Jesus' will, of course, is unique because after he died, he rose again. So it's Jesus himself standing up in front of the room full of followers. He's reading his own will because he's now risen from the dead, distributing his inheritance to all of his followers. And imagine the words of Jesus coming out across that room. As Jesus says, following my death to each man and each woman that has followed me, I bequeath the following. Each and every one of you will get the same allotment. I'm not going to divide my inheritance. Rather, you all receive the fullness of all that I have. Each of you is going to receive my righteousness, my perfect record. Each of you will receive the full love, the full affection, the full approval of my Father. Each of you receive the protection of the King of the universe. Each of you is going to receive the full power and presence of my Holy Spirit in your life. Each of you will receive as an inheritance eternal life in God's presence. Each of you receive all of the riches of my kingdom. Each of you will rule with me in the new heavens and the new earth. This is our eternal inheritance that we have through Christ. If you have faith in Him, this is yours. Are you trusting in Christ this morning as mediator, as redeemer? Because this is the covenant that you've received. This is the inheritance that you've received. You've been redeemed from all of your wrongs, cleansed of everything you're ashamed of, forgiven of every debt you owed God and man. Your life is now in this inheritance. This is your identity. You are an heir of Christ. Your future is in God's hands. He has called you. He has promised to give you an inheritance, and it's a free inheritance because of His calling, because of His grace and love. See, all that Christ has now belongs to you. This should define how you see yourself. It should transform your identity. I'm an heir of Christ. I, I, I inherit everything that belongs to Christ. I am righteous before Him. And so many of us live our lives tearing ourselves down. Beloved sisters, hear me for a moment. Sisters, so, so, so often you buy into this culture of women belittling themselves, thinking less of yourself. I hear you and I see you comparing yourselves to others, being critical of yourself. Listen, humility is not self-deprecation. Self-deprecation has no place in the Christian life, man or woman. See, do you realize what you've been given? Do you realize who you are? Do you realize your identity as a, as a child of God, as a daughter of God, as a son of God? How could, you, how could you dare tear yourself down? How could you dare be self-deprecating internally or externally? We are called to live in light of this great eternal inheritance to seek first His kingdom. Amen? Man, that's what we heard last week. If you were not here with us last week, you better jump online as soon as this service is done and listen to Pastor Matt's message. Because that message was a long fly ball to center field. If we had been at Camden Yards, that thing would have bounced off the warehouse. Go back and listen to that message. And he said, in the midst of anxieties that you're facing, seek first the kingdom. 
See, trouble in this world manifests in two ways. Either we pursue the empty pleasures of the world, thinking that those empty pleasures are going to comfort us and fulfill us, or we are burdened with the heavy burden of anxieties. And where the world grips you through the pursuit of pleasure or through the burden of heavy anxiety, the only comfort that you can find is by looking to and resting in Christ and his kingdom. Amen? And resting in your eternal inheritance. That's the cure for the empty pursuit of pleasure. That's the cure for the heavy burden of anxiety. It's to set your eyes on on what is true, who you really are, and the inheritance that now belongs to you. Let's look at verse 23 and the call that we have to eagerly await. To eagerly await. Verse 23 says, All the elements of worship in the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, the altars, the basins, the lampstands, all of those things, it says, were just copies, just symbols of heavenly realities. You remember, we, we looked at this idea of the tabernacle in the fall. You can see here on the, on the screen what the tabernacle would have looked like. By the way, uh, Gary Coggins, if you're in life group with Gary Coggins, please tell him that he missed the slides, okay, because we had, we had technical difficulties. Do we have a picture of the tabernacle? There we go. And he was all bummed out because we didn't have slides to show the pictures. And now we've got them and he's gone. So, <clears throat> right, the tabernacle was this big mobile tent, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. It was beautiful, it was elaborate, virtually priceless. It was surrounded by a courtyard. Go to the next slide. This courtyard that was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And the, the Levites literally stood as security guards around the courtyard, preventing anybody from from entering. And in the courtyard was this bronze basin where the priests would cleanse themselves, this bronze altar, bronze altar where they'd sacrifice. And then inside the tabernacle, we have the holy place and the most holy place. Right? The front two-thirds contained these three things you can see there on the slide. The golden lampstand, the table for the bread, and the altar of incense. But in that front third, a perfect 15-foot cube was the Holy of Holies, and it only had one thing in it. It was a room empty except for one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was a golden slab that was called the mercy seat. It was the throne of God on earth, the seat where God's presence would dwell. These beautiful symbols and pictures that, that were just copies of heavenly realities. But verse 23 says, look, if all of that in its beauty and its glory, if all of that had to be purified by the animal sacrifices, then the heavenly things themselves must be purified with a far better sacrifice. Do you, do you get what that's saying? They would have to sacrifice animals and sprinkle this with blood and purification ceremonies. And it says, if that's just a copy of a heavenly reality, how much better of a sacrifice does it take to purify that? And here's the thing that it's talking about. You and I, our souls are the heavenly reality because we are now the tabernacle of God. And so we must be purified with a far better sacrifice. What is that far better sacrifice? It's the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. We see two ways that he is far better than anything in the Old Covenant. Look at verse 24. First of all, it says Christ didn't enter a holy place made with human hands like an earthly tent. That was just a copy of the true holy place. But Jesus, our great mediator, our great high priest, he entered where? Into the dwelling place of God. Jesus entered into heaven itself. And even now he appears before the presence of God for us. 
You see that in verse 24? This is a beautiful truth. Highlight this. Even now, he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus, right now, is in the Holy of Holies, before God, seated at the very throne of grace next to the Father. And what is he doing? He is representing us, representing you before a righteous God, saying he is clean, he is forgiven. When you sin, he says, she has been cleansed. She has been cleansed by my death. When we need help, he advocates for us. We read that in Hebrews 7.25, that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus has gone into the presence of God, and even now he appears on our behalf. So first of all, he's better because he doesn't go into a, a human, an earthly tabernacle. But secondly, verse 25 says, he doesn't repeatedly offer the blood of an animal to atone for sin. Right? That's what the priest did in the Old Covenant. Every year on the Day of Atonement, they would offer up animals. They would take it into the holy place. But, but 26 says that, that was a losing battle, right? Because the plague of sin over the human race was so profound and so constant that if Jesus, even if he were going to actually go into heaven, if he were only going to go into heaven with the blood of an animal, he would have to do that continually, verse 26 says. Continually suffer and die many times since the foundation of the world. No, 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 verse 26 says, Jesus one time offered one sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, the sacrifice for sin once and for all to fully and finally pay the penalty for the sins of all of his people, not just all of his people, but for you through faith, for all that you have done, that your sin, friends, listen, it's been removed once and for all. The scriptures say that God remembers your sin no more, not because he couldn't, but because he doesn't, because in love he cannot remember what you've done. That might seem odd. If you look at verse 26, it says that, that the sacrifice of Jesus happened at the end of the ages. If you're doing the math, you're like, wait a minute. His sacrifice was 2,000 years ago. That doesn't seem like the end. But let me explain something to you. It's important to recognize that the New Testament authors consistently, consistently view the death and resurrection of Jesus as the inauguration of God's kingdom, as the, the beginning of the end, Right? We now are in the last days, not because of some war going on in some country right now that's, that's in the news, but because ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are in the last days. In fact, we understand Jesus' first coming and his second coming as, as two steps, one, two steps of one work to defeat evil, to redeem his people, and to restore the earth. And his first coming inaugurated the kingdom of God, and his second coming will consummate the kingdom of God. And so think of it this way. Your inheritance through the death and resurrection of Jesus, your inheritance has already been assessed and assigned to you. The money, the inheritance that belongs to you is in the bank. That money has been secured. The check has been written. The check is guaranteed. It's a guaranteed check. Your inheritance is guaranteed. And by the Holy Spirit in your heart, the scriptures say that that check has already been given to you. All that's left is for you to cash your check and receive your full inheritance at Christ's return. The first and second coming. What has already been secured will one day be finalized. And so that's why verse 28 ends this passage with a discussion of Jesus' return, his second coming. Because even though Jesus has appeared once for all as a sacrifice to redeem us from sin, he's going to appear a second time not to deal with sin. That's already been dealt with, but what? To save those, right? 
to save those who are eagerly awaiting. And it's a certainty. Listen, Christ's return is a, is, is, is a certainty. It's as certain as this, the Scripture says in verse 27. Every man, every woman, every child will one day die. It's a done deal. The day you were born, locked in the day of your death. And after death, the Scripture says in verse 27, there will be a judgment. We'll all one day stand before God to give an account of our lives. And I believe that the judgment of God is a very, very good thing. It's a wonderful thing. I think it's a comforting thing. Listen, nothing outside of God's universe goes unnoticed. God created all things, sustains all things, rules over all things. God is good and right and fair. And he will not allow anything to go without justice in his universe. And everything that is good will be rewarded and everything that is evil will be punished. And I think deep down we all crave, I think even non-believers crave a God who rules and reigns and judges. Because what a comfort. What a comfort to know that the evil that seems to be getting away with in this world will one day be put down. Those who defy God, who sin against God, think about this. Everyone that sinned against you. Worse yet, everyone who has harmed someone you love, one day they will stand before a holy God. And those of us that are trusting in Christ as Savior will receive a judgment, but it will be a judgment leading to eternal life. But those who have stood opposed to God will, will face a judgment leading to eternal punishment. And just as, just as rain makes things wet and fire burns hot, death will lead to judgment. And so in verse 27 and 28, he wraps up his argument and he says, the point is this, just as you can count on judgment to come after death, it is a certainty that Jesus' second appearance will come after his first. Now he's not coming again to deal with sin, but he's coming again a second time to save those who eagerly wait for him so that you can cash the inheritance check that is already yours. Amen? And so the call now is to eagerly wait. Are, are we eagerly waiting for the return of Christ? To be eager means you're ready, you're looking, you're passionate, you're attentive. Some of us are eagerly waiting, but you know what we're eagerly waiting for? The next three-day weekend. We're eagerly waiting for the next two-week vacation. We're eagerly waiting, young people, to get married, to get out of the house. Maybe you're eagerly waiting for retirement. The call here is to be eagerly waiting, to set your mind and your heart on the work of Christ and His return for us. What does it mean to be eager as we wait for the return? I think two things as we wrap up. One is hope. Friends, listen, there is no shortage of stress and anxiety in our lives. We're all dealing with rising costs, with financial strain, with political tension, with global wars. More intimately, you're dealing with relational tension. I've last count of how many people have come to me in recent months with broken marriages. The world around us seems to be spiraling away from God. But you have to ask yourself this, are you going to allow yourself to be defined by negativity, by pessimism, by hopelessness, by criticism, or will we be a people of hope, amen? Because no matter what you see with your physical eyes, look with your spiritual eyes and know that Christ is reigning in victory. He is seated on the throne. He is coming again to give you your eternal inheritance and so we can live every moment despite your deepest despair from a place of hope. But secondly, I think it means the call to be ready. Because the scriptures say that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. Not even he knows the day or the hour. And so we are called to be attentive, to be ready, to be alert. And that means we need to be faithful. That means every day we need to be obedient. We need to live for Christ like a servant living for his master. 
Aaron, I hope you don't mind me telling you this story, but Aaron worked as a, as a property manager for a wealthy millionaire out west. And the, the guy only came a few weeks a year, and Aaron's job was to continually, continually do maintenance and upkeep and service on the property so that everything was pristine. Because at any given moment, he could get a phone call saying, I'm showing up tomorrow with my family. The house better be ready. That's how we're called to live. Attentive, committed, serving the master, knowing that tomorrow he could arrive. And so we're called to be a person of hope and to be ready. Because Jesus, our Savior, has mediated for us this beautiful, new, eternal covenant, this relationship with God, and we each of us have a promised eternal inheritance. All of the riches of Christ, if your faith is in Him, belong to you. And so now let's live from a place of waiting, of eagerly waiting for our salvation, our full salvation. Yes, forgiveness and adoption into God's family, but also complete restoration of your own body, your own soul, all of the world, and eternal inheritance that we will one day reign in glory, in victory with God. Amen? And the worship team's going to come. We're going to sing and, and pray together and close out our service with worship. As the, as the worship team comes up to lead us, would you stand and pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful picture that your scripture has provided for us. And we set our eyes on you now in the midst of, of empty pursuits of the world, in the midst of anxieties that are burdening us, in the midst of relational strain and financial burden and, and mental health struggle and physical ailments. God, we set our eyes on you and your kingdom and our coming inheritance. And we pray that you'd stir us to faith, stir us to be people of hope, stir us to be men and women, young men and women that live our lives ready, ready for your return as we set our, our eyes on the only hope for this life and the only hope that we have for the life to come. And that is Christ and his sacrifice for us his resurrection for us and his return for us. Hear us as we sing in Jesus' name.